There's a famous quote of John Calvin's that I see stated every now and then, sometimes on social media or in church groups, and it goes something like this. Calvin stated, The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. This morning, I want to put to you that John is an excellent pastor. The text leading up to our verses today are verses of warning, to some extent, from John. Warning about wolves, wolves in the church, perhaps even wolves within our own hearts. He would later go on to describe even antichrists or the spirit of antichrist in our midst. He's given some tough tests to us, tests of faith. Some of those tests would even and should even bring all of us to our knees to plead the mercy of Christ, to remind us of our utter dependence upon Him. But as a good pastor, John interrupts his epistle today with words of pure gospel and pure grace. He's a loving pastor. He points out the wolves, but then reminds us of the gospel and reminds us that we who are in Christ are his precious children. So today, we get the gentle, reassuring voice of the shepherd because an even bigger test comes at the end of our passage today. Let us read together 1 John beginning in the second chapter, verses 12 through 17. I'll give, give you a moment to turn there or scroll there, as the case may be today. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And thanks be to God for this, his incredible word to us that speaks a good word in due season. Up to this point, as I've mentioned in the text, there's been a lot of teaching and tests on what a true Christian is, what a true Christian looks like, what a true Christian behaves like. However, there have been some moments of grace interspersed if we recall in chapter 1, verse 9, we're reminded that if we confess our sins, 
that he, that is Christ, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We also have beautiful gospel promises at the beginning of chapter 2 where John reminds us that Christ is interceding for us even now at God's right hand, at the Father's right hand. And we are also reminded of Jesus' propitiating work for us on the cross. These have been beautiful oases of God's grace caught between some stark and stern words of warning. Finally, in this passage that we started with today, we have three verses of assurance. I don't think John ever intended to create doubt in a Christian or a Christian's heart. And I think that's why, as a good pastor, John comes here and says, let me remind you of your identity in Christ. Let me remind you of the promises of the gospel. Yes, God is holy, and we are called to the pursuit of holiness. But because of the gospel, you are secure in Him, and you can be holy because you are declared holy. Lest we fear, let us consider these words of John's encouragement this morning. First, as we look at the text, we need to understand to whom John is speaking there are three common views of how to interpret this particular passage. It seems on the surface quite simple. Children are addressed twice, young men twice, and fathers twice. But there are three varying views. The first view of the passage is that John is essentially addressing all Christians, but considering them in different ways. In other words, each remark that John gives applies to all believers, not just to separate age groups as such. A second option for interpretation that was favored by Augustine and a number of the early church fathers says that each statement focuses on specific categories of believers or ages of believers. The view sees the approximate ages as being spiritual ages, however, not actual ages. So, for example, you might have an older person who comes to faith that is but a child in the faith, so that, in fact, John is speaking spiritually. The third option suggests that when John uses the phrase children or little children, that he is referring to all believers, because, in fact, in this very epistle, he refers to all of the believers as children in other contexts. With this view, children is everyone, and that young men and fathers then are referring to specific groups. And there are many commentators who hold to this position. Regardless of how we read and understand that, the text doesn't change, and nor does its intended meaning or teaching. What I want to suggest is that we can generally apply the text to all believers today, However, there are specific applications for various times in life that we can consider. And I am also convinced, along with John Calvin, that this is definitely referring to spiritual rather than actual age. So let's begin in verse 12 with the children. In verse 12 we read, Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. 
the first thing that must be settled in any Christian's life from the beginning of life in Christ is the understanding and knowledge that our sins are forgiven. All true believers have their sins forgiven. We are not a people hoping that our sins are forgiven. We are not a people in the process of having our sins forgiven. We are sinners who are forgiven in Christ. The Christian is one who knows this, is the one who holds on to the reality that in Christ our sins are forgiven. John is reminding us not to doubt that very basic principle of the Christian life. If you are in Christ and you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have committed your life to Him and have taken up your cross, your sins are forgiven. They will not be counted against you at any time, now or the present or, the, or in the future, as far as the east is from the west, so as He removed our sin from us. Your sins this morning, if you are in Christ, are not as a result of anything that you have done. It is based on what John says here, His namesake. In other words, our forgiveness is based upon the name of Jesus. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. His name, Jesus, means Savior. He is the one whose name is to be revered in the Ten Commandments, in the Lord's Prayer, because He is Emmanuel, God with us, and Savior. He is the one that we look to when we seek the Father. Because He and the Father are one. Our sins are forgiven for this one's namesake. That forgiveness is not vague. It is not wavering. It is forgiven by the only name under heaven by which men and women may be saved. Jesus Christ. The glory of the gospel shines forth in the name of our Savior, the one who saves us completely, we are not left to our own devices to work out salvation through our good works. We're not left to figure out how to get to God, whether we can balance the scales. Maybe I can be good enough to earn heaven. We can't be. No, it is completed and finished in the work of our Savior. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophet Isaiah tells us. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Reformed Baptist preacher, put it like this, If guilt for past sin remains... There is no point in going forward and trying to keep the commandments. We are not saved. If we are in doubt and in flux, we must trust that word of God that brings salvation to us. We need to know and trust Christ at his word that our sins have been forgiven completely and absolutely by him. Little children, Christian. John writes to remind us this morning, that our sins are forgiven. This is here to build our confidence 
in Christ to be assured of his love for us. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven and there is no reason for doubting. Next to the children, if we skip ahead, John says in verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. If you are a Christian this morning, you have access to and know the Father. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Because of Jesus and his work on our behalf, we are the children of God. We have access to the most holy and high God. There is no other religion in the world that speaks like this, that the one who sits in light, inaccessible, who is hid from our eyes, who is the ancient of days, girded with praise, is the one we have access to. That is our Father, the one whom the angels sing, as we read earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That one is our Father. I've personally heard atheists make fun of our God and chide us for believing in our sky daddy. But they mock the one immortal, invisible, only God or God only wise, as the hymn says. And because of the work of Christ, because our sins are forgiving, because of the great love with which he loved us, we can come to him, to cry to him, even using expressions like Abba, Father. Little children, Christian, John says, you have access to the Father and he is your father because of Christ. John addresses the second group this morning in verses 12 and 14. The second group is the fathers, those of maturity in the faith. He says the same thing twice to them by repeating the statement, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, if the Bible repeats something multiple times we know it's important and we have this twofold repetition here because you know him who is from the beginning and notice he's not saying you might know him he's assuring john is assuring the people reading his letters the believers that you know him john is confident the fathers are to draw assurance from the fact that they know the one who is from the beginning now it is possible that John is referring here to Jesus because even in chapter 1 of this epistle, when he is clearly speaking of Jesus, he speaks of the one who is from the beginning. John frequently uses language like this. John could also be referring directly to the Father as the one who is from the beginning. It does not change either way because, frankly, in John's Christology, in the biblical revelation, the unity and the beauty of the Godhead are on display because everything that we could say about the Father, we could say about the Son, things like divinity, power, and glory be to the Son and to the Father and to the Spirit. 
The passage's emphasis here is to remind fathers in the faith to look to God and His unchanging character and faithfulness. The God who we know from the beginning is given to us in Christ Jesus as the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can age and die in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, fully trusting on the one who is from the beginning. In the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, there are several accounts of visitors in his final days. And he was frequently asked how he felt in his soul. Was he at peace? What brought him peace? And it was expected by a number of people that it would have been his years of faithful ministry, his literally thousands of pages of books, decades of preaching the gospel and not compromising the faith. It wasn't that. Lloyd-Jones went to his deathbed confident because of the promise that his name had been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth of the world. That's the message we all need. The one that the Father who is from the beginning holds all things from creation to the end of the age. Everything in His hand. This is the Father who is from the beginning, who is not a force, who is not some cosmic principle or power, but who has loved us everlastingly in Jesus Christ. He is omniscient and omnipotent, and does truly hold the world in his hands. We can be assured, if this one has forgiven our sins as children, they are now and always forgiven, and that we will be his children for all eternity. The third group John addresses is young men. In verse 13 he says, I am writing you young men because you have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, John says, I write you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and once again, you have overcome the evil one. The young men are those who are engaged in the raging battle to overcome the evil one. The symbolism is of a person in their prime at full strength. However, notice the verb tense in the phrase we get in both verses. You have overcome, past tense, the evil one. That sounds like good news to me, but there's something even better here. We can misread this as a simple past tense in English, but in fact, in Greek, it's the perfect tense. The perfect tense is used to show a completed verbal action. Here's your dictionary definition. But it's something that happened in the past, that has relevance in the present. The emphasis in the perfect tense is on a present reality. So what does this mean for us? This te text teaches that in the past, something happened to allow you to overcome the evil one. The tense is used in six different verbs in the passage of these first three verses. In verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Past happening is the forgiveness of sins, but a present reality. 
in verse 14, you know him, past happening, present reality. You have overcome past, but present reality. And you know the Father again. The, the perfect tense is used there. Verse 14, again, the same. So if you read through this carefully, you'll see that all of these things that are being ascribed to Christians happened in the past, but have a present reality. You know the Father who's from the beginning? That was in the past that you knew Him and know Him now. You have victory over the evil one because of the past, the forgiveness of sins because of something that happened in history with ramifications for all human history. And what happened in the past is Jesus. We can be strong in the faith as these young men are admonished. We can be confident because the victory has already been won. Jesus has already accomplished it. He accomplished it through His perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Satan is a defeated foe this morning. Jesus' victory is our victory. His victory on the cross through the resurrection is our victory in the present. If we are united to Christ, we conquer in the present by the blood of the Lamb, according to Revelation 12, 11. Or as Paul put it in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That is why John writes, you have overcome now the evil one. It is finished, Jesus declared on the cross. From God's eternal perspective, the war is over and the evil one is defeated. Yet we still endure in this present life the effects of sin and the curse. So let us consider a couple of things this morning. This is where we are to draw our strength. Number one, the war is already won. Jesus has won the war. Secondly, we do need the proper tools for battle in our daily life because the death pangs of Satan's kingdom and the death of his kingdom is still not finished from our earthly perspective. We still battle the flesh and the devil on a daily basis. Draw courage from passages like verse 14 and notice the key ingredient of our overcoming the evil one. The Word of God abides in you. This is John's testimony to these young men who are in Christ. The Word of God abides in you. It is the Word of God that brings new life through the work of the Spirit, life that will never die but will continue to grow until we achieve and reach the likeness of Christ. That Word is the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6 that we use to do battle. Again, I go to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's way too quotable. How is it that this Word of God makes us strong to fight sin? It does it in this way. It shows me the horrible nature of sin. And while the Word of God abides in me, I am made to see sin and all its ugliness and selfishness and perversion, and I hate it. It also teaches men and women about the destiny of those who are the slaves of sin. 
It shows them that they are going to hell and destruction outside the life of God for all eternity. It also shows them, thank God, the power of Christ and how Christ has defeated the enemy already and how Christ comes into them and makes them strong and enables them to become more than conquerors against all these things that assail them. He just summarized everything I said. <laughs> Brilliant. There's the gospel in a nutshell. The power of the Word of God. If we want victory over the evil one and over sin, we must abide in the Word and allow the Word to abide in us and to recreate new life. Now we come to the point in the sermon that the title references. So we finish the introduction now. Kidding. John has been reminding us of these glorious gospel riches in Jesus Christ amidst his testing of our faith. And I hope that you're encouraged in your spirit, and I hope that all of you who are in Christ this morning trust him at his word, and you understand that your salvation is eternal from the one who is eternally God. Because coming up is, at least in my opinion, the most difficult spiritual inventory we've had so far. Let us read in verse 15. We read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A command and a conditional statement is all we just read. The word world, in Greek, cosmos or cosmos, can have multiple meanings. It can refer simply to the universe or the world that God has created in a general sense. It can also refer to collectively the body of humanity in a general sense. However, most of the time that John and the other writers of the scriptures use the word cosmos or world, they're using it to describe a world, a people, at enmity with God. In John's other writings, the world is described as rejecting Christ because it did not know him. Or the world lies in the grip of the evil one, according to John. Jesus also said that the world would hate his followers because it hated him. This is the sense of the world or the word world, that John is using here. The conditional clause is quite simple. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let that sink in for a moment. You can have the world, but you will not have the love of God abiding in you. Jesus said something similar about the soul when he asked... What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I want to suggest to you this morning that if you feel a lack of joy in your Christian life, that it might be because you have never considered verses like these. That there is within us a desire for the world, a desire for 
what we can get in this life. But Christ demands that we see the gospel, that we see the kingdom as the pearl of great price, which is worth giving and losing everything for. We cannot have it both ways. We cannot have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the kingdom of hell. We can't have just enough Jesus to make us miserable because what we truly desire is the world. You cannot have peace, joy, and fulfillment in this life without the love of God in Christ abiding in us. So let's zero in on what John is saying here in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The ethics of the world and the kingdom of God are opposed to each other. But it's not just a matter of obeying a few externals or some written code. It's a matter of the heart. We are every day tempted to set up our own rules, our own kinds of tests. And we think oftentimes that as long as we meet our certain code of righteousness, we're doing okay. When I grew up, there was a, a saying that basically went something like this, that you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, or go out with the girls that do. That's not what I'm talking about here this morning, right? That's external, and that's a set of laws. Those are man-made laws, and it doesn't penetrate to our hearts and to our motives. Martin Luther described humanity as homo incurvatus in se, that is, curved in on itself, desperately wicked and twisted. And it is the work of the Word and the Spirit to make our hearts aligned straight to God. Another issue that we're tempted to do is that we read these statements of John about the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and so on, and we're tempted to think, oh, that's the bad, gross stuff. That's not my little sin problem. But the fact is, it includes the gross stuff to be sure, but it includes our heart condition which desires sin of any kind. When we set our heart's affections on the things that the world offers rather than heavenly things, no matter how trivial the sin may seem, we're guilty of worldliness. So we must consider each of these three items that John gives us. First, the desires of the flesh. These are all sins that come from a sensual desire to fulfill one's own longings. It can come from sex, food, drink, or any other obsession and addiction rooted in the desire for sensual fulfillment, moving from one dopamine high to the next. We can think of this by isolating a few sins as examples. You might say it's the person who does not eat to live, but lives to eat. Maybe it's the person who's just one more click away from that downward spiral 
to a disgusting website, to that bottomless pit leading to death and slavery. The old fleshly nature still beckons believers to that pit, whatever your unique broken sin nature still abides. Whether it's pornography, whether it's overindulgence of the flesh in any way, this is what John is talking about. This is from the world, and this is enmity with God. Second is the phrase, the desire of the eyes. How often our sight leads us to sin. Consider Jesus' admonition in the Sermon on the Mount that lust, not just adultery, was sin. Lusting is sin. So many sins begin with the eyes and not just lust. It's that moment when we linger over something and start to play and toy with it in our minds. That toying that leads to sin. Maybe it's vanity, show, social status, positions that comes through belongings, cars, vacations, whatever. Covetness, coveting. This may seem trivial. Some of these may seem trivial, but it reflects on a heart that is more in tune with the things of the world than the things of God. I remember in my own life, when I look back to my junior high years, I so wanted to fit in, and I thought one of the ways I could fit in with my peers was to dress a certain way. And I wanted to hang out with the people that wore the guest jeans and the British night tennis shoes. That was the thing. Some of you might be old enough to remember that. I thought I was going to make it. I was going to be something. I didn't have a lot of money, and my parents didn't want to give into that obsession. <laughs> but I was jealous of those who had those things. I desired them. I desired what I thought that they would bring, a certain social status. Now, this may seem ridiculous, but again, this is a heart turned on the things of the world and not on the things of God. My desire for designer apparel began with the eyes. Thirdly, the pride of life. There's a lot that could go under this because, in fact, the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden was founded upon pride, to be like God, to have their eyes opened and certainly we see this today. We see those who want to declare their own identity based on their subjective feelings. They identify in whatever way they want. A man identifying as a woman or vice versa or any other extreme that's out there. That comes from pride. Pride is arrogance. Pride is conceit and boastfulness, whether it is in the face of God or to our fellow human beings. It's more than just keeping up with the Joneses. It's doing better. It's holding a general contempt when others are successful. This person might be the name dropper who glories in and covets recognition. Pride, position, prestige. It can come from worldly possessions and it can come from status. The one who loves titles. Oh, you only went to Washtenaw Community College? Well, I went to U of M. 
for grad school. I was at Yale in undergrad. That kind of mentality. Taking pride in what the world sees as valuable rather than what the kingdom sees as truly valuable. And nothing against education this morning. It's important. It's good. Many of these things are good things that we distort and turn and curve in on ourselves. And we make them sinful. Education is good. Money is not inherently evil. The things that God has given us as gifts are not inherently evil. It's our perverse usage of them and twisting of them. One who justifies their sins as acceptable also falls into this category. Well, I may sin, but I don't sin like that person over there. That's pride and part of the pride of life. So notice all of these things as we start to draw to a close. Notice that all of these things show no love for God or neighbor. Rather, our neighbors are pushed down as we try to outdo them. We don't live for their care or the glory of God. We revel in being recognized and being a cut above others. We covet in order to gain that which is temporal and lose that which is eternal. John's final admonition in verse 17 reminds us that this world is passing away along with its desires. This again is good news. It is good news for the Christian because the warfare will end. It will end. And there will come a day when we can put down our weapons. The fleshly desires that we must fight and crucify on a daily basis will be gone and replaced by a fully sanctified soul and body. And that's assurance. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Through the power of the gospel, we can be set free from the love of the world. We can turn our back on the desires of the flesh. And through a life of repentance, or what the Puritans called even improving our baptism, we grow in grace. We can avert our eyes from the world to turn them to Christ and ignore the lies of the serpent that tell us to engorge ourselves on the pride of life and self-gratification. And until that last day when we step into eternity, remember this. John encourages us with these words, remember that your sins are forgiven. Remember that you have access and know the Father, and remember that you have overcome the evil one. Draw assurance from these words. No matter how hard life gets or how difficult the test may be, know that the one who does love you also loves the world in the sense that he sent his son to redeem it. On him, on you, the one who trusts in Christ, the love of the Father abides. And as our text says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. For in Christ we have already overcome and will abide forever into eternity. Amen.